Let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to Mark chapter 3. And uh, let's stand together out of respect for God's Word. Mark chapter 3. Thank you for the great, great music. Um, just wonderful. The music is ministry, isn't it? Uh, very good, very talented, but ministry. And that's what it should be. Once in a while, um, as evangelists, we can get, um, if we're not careful, into showmanship. And we don't want that. I'm not saying that I was last night. I'm just saying I don't ever want to be in showmanship. I want to truly be serving. And as a musician, you could get that way if you're not careful. But the good thing is we don't ever have to get that way. We can always get it right. And sometimes I pray, Lord, help me to not preach the wrong sermon. And then it hits me. If I ask him to help me and never preach the wrong sermon, I never have to preach the wrong sermon. Because he always will lead. Amen. And so as we stay connected to him, um, we will do well. Amen. All right, let's look at Mark chapter 3 this evening. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and he called unto them whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, a certain named Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he surnamed the Boanerges, which is the son of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Altheus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask you, Lord, to move tonight to let the Word of God, the doctrine, change us, Lord, as we take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine. We pray, Lord, that you'd use it tonight. Help me, Lord, as I preach. And Father, use this message and take it any way it needs to go. And I pray that you use me. Take me as a vessel and just shape me up, Lord, any way I need to be shaped. And uh, Lord, just for the sake of this going forth in the way that it needs to, Father, Father, as you want it to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. Have you ever, and I know you have, heard the phrase, he got the cart before the horse? Well, we use that many times when we preach about trying to get the cart of serving God before the power of God that pulls it. But yet, there are many times when we actually do that. We get busy serving God before we get connected to God. We get busy doing for God before we've spent time with God so that we would be able to do a work for God. I remember years ago going to a great evangelist and asking him to sign my Bible. And I said, you're a great preacher. And he said to me something I haven't forgotten. He said, more important than that I ever would be a good preacher would be that I'd be a great Christian. And that made an impact on me. And I would rather be a great Christian than to be a great preacher. But I think if I'm called to preach, I'm a great Christian, then I'll be a great preacher. 
And a great preacher is simply the one that God wants me to be. So in this, we sometimes get the cart before the horse. Now in this passage, Christ called his 12 disciples to himself. And as he called them, we often think about this passage as a time when he called these 12 and sent them out to be preachers. But we sometimes overlook the fact that he gave them two calls in this passage. And we identify sometimes with the fact that, man, we're going to be preachers and we're witnesses and we can identify with them. And who hasn't thought about wanting to be like the disciples and the Apostle Paul and be greatly and mightily used? I have. I've got dreams. I want to be used by God in the way like the Apostle Paul was used in all these disciples. But when I think about it, I've often thought about, man, what did these people do? How did they preach? What made them so powerful? And as I was looking at this passage, I saw something that affected me. I noticed that the disciples were given two calls, not one. And let's go ahead and look at that in verse 14. It says, And he ordained twelve that they should be with him. That's the first call. And that he might send them forth to preach. That is the second call. And I want us to look tonight at this first call. And I'm going to look at this from three different angles, being with him. And more important than anything that we do for him is being with him. And we're going to look at it from three different angles. Now, how many of you have ever looked at a statue and you look at it from the front, you see one perspective of that statue. And then you go over to this side and you see the same statue from a different angle and you've got a different appreciation for that same statue. Then you look from the other angle and you see another perspective and you appreciate that. Well, we're going to look at the same truth tonight of being with him and we'll look at it from three different angles. Now, first of all, I want to look at it as the overlooked call. The overlooked call. And it is that they should be with him. Now, did you ever grasp, if not, you need to, we need to, I need to. Have we ever grasped that before God ever asked us to do anything for him, he asked us to be with him? In Matthew 8, 22, it says, Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. He didn't say preach. He just said, follow me. In Mark 9, Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed forth from thence and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom and he saith unto him, follow me. That's all he said. Follow me. Just be with me. And he arose and followed him. There was not one mention of serve me, but just be with me. Matthew 16, 40, 24, Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And again, no mention of preach yet. And then Mark 10, 21, Jesus beholding him, loved him, the rich man, and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go and sell all that thou hast, and come and follow me. Now he was saying, leave all of that and be with me. And that's what he wanted from him. 
And John 1, 43, speaking to Philip, follow me. In John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, one time I was thinking, what is the ultimate goal of my ministry? And maybe you might call it midlife crisis, but I'm that old now. And I wonder when am I going to be sure that I'm doing this thing right and that I'm accomplishing the purpose that God has given to me. And so I began to think, am I going to be an effective evangelist when I see X amount of people get saved? And then I began to think, I could see a lot of people get saved. But if I saw 100 people in a month get saved, and I saw 12 months of that, I would see 1,200 people get saved, 10 years of that, 12,000 people, 50 years of that, 60,000 people get saved. Now that would be exciting, but when I consider there are 7.2 billion people in the world, and I can only reach 60,000 of them, I'm not even putting a dent in the real need. So then I began to think, though I love seeing people saved, is that the ultimate goal of my ministry? And I, I concluded that would not necessarily make me a successful evangelist. So I began to think, well, what if I finally get the churches in America serious and they get serious serving God or they get out of sin and they clean up their lives? And I began to think, is it getting people to stop sinning? But then I thought there are a lot of unsaved people that live pretty good lives in fact, we know some people, unsaved people, that might even be more moral than a lot of Christians are moral. And even if somebody cleans up their life, we haven't actually taken them exactly to where they need to be. And even if we clean up our lives, we've not exactly gotten to where we need to be. And so when I was looking through the scripture, I was looking for what is the qualifying um, determinator, the, what determines if I'm a successful evangelist and I came up with this conclusion by looking at the scriptures. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.18 that all things are of God who hath made us, hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and get this part, hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now Jesus died on the cross. Why? Romans 5 says to reconcile us to God. Reconciliation is to bring two people that are separated back together again. When Adam and Eve sinned, we were separated from God. When Jesus came, we were reconciled to God, brought back together again. And so what was the whole purpose of Jesus coming? To reconcile us to God. And then, what were we given ministry to do? To reconcile people to God. And I realized that that's it. The goal of my ministry is if I can take whoever I'm speaking to just a little closer to God than they presently are. That's success. Because what God wants more than anything is us and man. And he wants them to be with him here and in eternity. Now, People need salvation, yes. Why? So they can be with God instead of separated. People need to know that Jesus satisfies. Why? So they'll want a relationship with God when they're empty. People need 
to hear that God answers prayer so that they want a relationship with God. And we tell them these things about God, but he wants them more than anything that they would do for him. And he wants us more than he wants us to be preachers and preachers, wives, and missionaries. So when I was looking this over, it really helped me. The first call that God ever gave me that I often overlooked because I was so busy serving God is to be with him. I remember years ago, guys, being so busy telling young people I need to read their Bible that I didn't have time to read my Bible because I had to get those teenagers reading their Bible. And what it really was was misplaced priorities, but more importantly, it was a misplaced focus. And that is what God wants first. He doesn't want just a bunch of worker bees. He wants us, and we need him. Now, in this passage, after Christ called the disciples, I want you to notice that it says in verse 20, the, that uh, Jesus went into a house in verse 19, Mark chapter 3. But now notice what happens in verse 20. The multitude cometh together again immediately, right after he called them to be his disciples, and he was going to send these people to preach immediately right after the first thing that happens. Verse 20, the multitude cometh together so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is beside himself. Now, the first example that these people see, the disciples, is that Jesus' quote-unquote friends think he's crazy. They grew up with him. They think they know him well. And they think that they're close to him because he simply grew up with them. But... They come when Jesus begins this effort of this kind of ministry and he thinks he's crazy and they're trying to take him out before he embarrasses himself. Now, you know what I think God is doing? I think God is giving an illustration to his disciples. I am not just going to look at you 12 as my worker bees. I'm not just going to look at you as my servants. These people think that they're my friends because they grew up with me. They're not my friends. You're my friends. They're rejecting me. You're my friends. In fact, in John 15, 15, he says, Henceforth I call you not servants, but I have called you what? Friends. And I think it's important that we recognize the two most endearing terms that you could give to somebody is one friend, two family. And I want you to look at verse 31, same chapter. There came then his brethren, his mother, and standing without sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude about him uh, sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about them which sat about him, the disciples, and he said, Behold, look, there they are. Like I was saying earlier today, that's what behold means. Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister, and my mother. Now, how many of you in this room, I do believe it's going to be unanimous response, how many of you in this room want to serve God? 
you want to be a servant of God. Would you just raise your hand? Now, if you sincerely raise your hand and I sincerely raise my hand, then you know what God said? You are my family. Now, we understand that none of us have the position that Jesus has. None of us are God. He is God. None of us are deity. He is deity. None of us are the important one in this thing. But yet, he makes it very clear and he on purpose shows his disciples, you're not just going to be my worker bees. I want you to be with me. I want to walk with you. I want you to be my family. I want you to be my friends. And it's very clear that he is wanting us in a relationship with him before we ever serve him. In fact, I think he would want that if it was one or the other. But I do think that if we choose to fellowship with him, we will want to serve him. And we'll get there, and that will come. But the first thing is to be with me. There was a well-known evangelist who was holding meetings in an area, and I met one of his family members, and the family member said to me, one day this great evangelist that is preaching said, uh, I'm going to be in your area, and I'm going to be preaching. And we're seeing God do this. We're seeing God do that. And it was all wonderful what God was doing. And then he said, and I wondered if you could get everybody in the family, the kids and the cousins and all the relatives to come to the meetings. We want them to see what we do. And this preacher said back, or this man said back of this evangelist, I said to this evangelist relative of mine, and he was teaching me something. He was teaching me, Mike, put your family first. Don't forget your family. And he said to me, Brother Mike, I told this evangelist that you know, and I am not speaking poorly of him, I learned from a mistake he was making. He said, I asked this evangelist relative of mine, why don't you ever just come around to be with us? We're all glad that you're preaching. We're all glad that God is using you. We're all glad that you're serving God. And we're glad that you're sacrificing in this way. But sometimes we don't want to hear you preach. We just want to be with you. And sometimes I think we forget the first thing that God wants is not us preaching. He wants us to be with him. And I'm working on this in my own life. There are seasons frankly, where I feel closer to him than other seasons. But I know this is the thing that we need. And this has to be a continual pursuit. It has to be number one priority because this is the first thing that God has called us to, to be with him. And the idea is, I think, John 15, 1 through 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches, and you know that passage, and it says, unless you abide in the vine, you cannot bear fruit. Now, abiding in the vine is that uninterrupted union. The branch is always connected, it's never broken off, and the moment that is breaking off and it's laying there, it begins to die. It begins to dry. The blossoms and the beauty never come. The fruit never ever comes again. Why? It got broken off from the source. Now, sometimes we even think about this John 15 passage and we say, 
Yes, I've got to abide with Christ. He wants me to abide with him so that I'll be a great soul winner. You know what John 15, 1 through 5 is talking about? He says, these things I write unto you that my joy might remain in you. Not that you would even be a great soul winner. But he said, these things I write unto you. What things? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. Not a little, but a much. And so as we even think of that, sometimes we think, well, we'll see a lot of people saved. I want to see a lot of people saved. But Jesus is not talking even about the fruit of seeing a lot of people saved. He's talking about this. These things I write unto you that my joy might remain in you. It's impossible for Mike Pelletier to be having any joy if Mike Pelletier is not close to Jesus. And it's impossible for you to have it and maintain it, that your joy would remain in you. And so what he wants more than anything is that are we, we are with him in an uninterrupted union. Now, it's sweet. It's wonderful. It is a sweet thing to think that God wants me and that God wants you. It's not just emotional talk. It's a Bible talk. Abide, family, friends. And we overlook that God wants us before he wants what we do for him. Now, we looked at that from the first perspective is the overlooked call. So now, let's go to the other side and look at that same thing. Be with me that I may send you forth to free, preach from the order of the call. Same statue, same thought from this perspective. Now, often commands are given in a specific order and it is for a specific good reason. For instance, brush your teeth and go to bed. You never say go to bed and brush your teeth. Why? That would be a mess. Sometimes people will say, be quiet and listen. Why? Because you can't listen unless you stop talking. Somebody will say, would you go to the store and get some milk? Why? You have to go to the store before you can get some milk. You don't typically get your milk and go to the store. And you understand that there are reasons that commands are given in those orders as they're given. Now, one reason that the command is given to be with me that I might send you forth to preach, it is a priority. Now, the call to be with Jesus was the priority for these disciples. The call to be with Jesus is the priority for me. That's what God puts on me. The priority to be with him is the priority he puts on you. Now, what if a child said to his mother, Esther, she said, brush your teeth and go to bed. She says, well, did you brush your teeth and go to bed? Before you went to bed? And he says, no, I didn't brush my teeth, but I went to bed. Would mom be okay with that? No, there would be a problem. Am I right? Everybody follow me? And so what God says is, be with me that I might send you forth to preach. And that reminds me, that reminds us, it's a problem if we're doing before we're being with him. Now, 
be with me that I might send you forth to preach because it's a priority. And Christ made it very clear that this was a priority. Mary and Martha, sisters, prepare a meal for Christ. And Martha's busy serving while Mary is just being with Christ. Martha's upset because Mary's not what? Working. And so what happened? Jesus said, Martha, Martha, thou art troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part that shall not be taken away from her. Now, how many of you serve God in part because you're thankful that he saved you from your sins so you don't spend an eternity in hell? I do. I'm thankful. Now, if anybody ought to be thankful for what God did for them, it ought to be a guy named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was the fellow who was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. And though I'm not in any way cutting down or belittling the idea that we should be giving out gospel tracts and we should be going soul winning and door knocking and doing all these things, if anybody ought to be dedicated in witnessing and handing out tracts nonstop, it ought to be this guy Lazarus. He was dead. And he was resurrected. Now, in Luke chapter 10, or John chapter 11, Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now, what was he doing in John chapter 12 to show his gratitude for being resurrected from the dead? All right, John chapter 12 and verse 2. Let's look at that. John 12 and verse 2. And if there's anybody who ought to be grateful, anybody who ought to be zealous, anybody who owes Jesus everything, it's Lazarus. So how does he show his gratitude for being raised from the dead in John chapter 11, John chapter 12 in verse 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that, what? Sat at the table with him. And there's an illustration. Before we ever do anything for Christ, we need to be with Christ. And the way that he showed his gratitude was spending time with him. The way he showed that I'm grateful was being with them. And this is where we can start and must start. Now, first, it is priority. But then secondly, when the order is put in such an order, there's a purpose for it. As I mentioned, um, be quiet and listen. Why? Got to quit looking. Got to quit talking so you can listen. Hey, sit up and listen. Now, why do we do that when somebody's not listening? Because we know when they're sitting down and slouched, they're probably not all in. So we say these things, and we say them in order because this is going to take us to where we need to be. And here's what Christ says, be with me. Why? That I might send you forth to preach. And what he's saying is we cannot effectively do what we are here to do until we do the first thing. We cannot effectively preach about Jesus until we are first with Jesus. How many have ever sold a product or tried to sell a product that you didn't really believe was a great product? How many have ever tried to sell a product that you didn't know a thing about? There was a time, maybe about a year ago, when one of my buddies came up with something great in the medical field, came to me and he said, Mike, if you just get two or three doctors to use this, and I kind of needed a little supplemental income, 
And I thought, well, I don't know, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? And I did a dumb thing. I tried to sell this thing. And he said, you're not selling it. You're just representing it. And they'll pick it up and then I'll send you a little bit for your mission trips. I said, well, all right, I'll give it a shot. So I talked to one doctor and I said to him, have you ever heard about molecular diagnostic testing? Let me talk to you about molecular diagnostic testing. And I said, the efficacy of this molecular diagnostic testing is way better than the cultural sensitivity testing. And I go on and on and on with the efficacy, the accuracy, and the efficiency. And uh, I'm trying to give all these big words about how the veracity and all of this stuff, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So finally, I said, you know what? I don't know a thing of what I'm talking about. Here's paper, read about it, okay? If you want to do it, call this guy up. And he called him up and he talked. He said, it's awesome. And the doctor did use it, but I never got a penny from it. But praise God, I got what I need. But the thing is, trying to sell a product that you don't know anything about, have you ever tried to convince people that they get peace from Jesus, but you never experienced it? Have you ever tried to convince anybody that Jesus really satisfies, but you never got that yourself? Have you ever tried to convince people that God will give you victory over sin, but you still struggle with sin? You need Jesus to get you victory over it, but you don't have it. Have you ever tried to sell something or someone that you have never truly experienced yourself? But then have you ever had something in someone that you know about and experienced? It's a whole lot easier to represent someone you have experienced. Now, Jesus said, be with me that I might send you forth to preach because you have to be with him before you are ready to represent him. And then you learn a lot when, we are, when you are with him. I learn a lot when I am with him. The disciples learned that he had to be God. They saw him calm the sea. Think that was impressive? My music man and his wife and my wife and I went to Israel and my music man's wife actually walked on water. She did. Ben Jaquith asked us, how would you like to walk on water? And uh, somebody said, yeah, let's do it. And they said, well, we need a volunteer. I said, Heather will do it, my music man's wife. She's a good sport. So he blindfolded her. And we're out on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and he's taking her toward the edge, and he says, now you're going to walk on water. And she's just laughing, ha, 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 ha. But you know, she's thinking, what is he going to do to me? And the next thing you know, he takes a bucket of water and he pours it on the ground and he pushes her and she walks on water. Okay, now, that was not so impressive. But when Jesus walked on water, that was impressive. That was impressive. And then they saw demons come and they worshiped Jesus. That was impressive. And they saw that he had power over demons and they saw that he did 36 miracles to prove his deity and they saw he was omnipotent, he was God, he could do anything. And once they saw that, that made them ready to represent him. They observed his tenderness toward people. You hear people say, you know, the ministry would be great if it just wasn't for these people. You've heard that 
and everybody chuckles. But the fact is, there are a lot of preachers who don't feel love and empathy toward the people that they preach to. And Jesus did. It says in Matthew 5, 41, he took a damsel by the hand and saith unto her, Tabitha Kumai, or Talisha Kumai, I'm not saying it right, but it being interpreted as damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she was tender in, her, in his eyes. In Mark 8, 23, he took a blind man by the hand. There's some tenderness there. I'm not saying you guys go out and say, I'm obeying God, so I'm holding my girl's hand. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is when in ministry was there, there was a tenderness there with Jesus that the disciples saw. In Mark 9, 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The boy that had been torn, the boy that had been cast into the fire, probably very ugly from the burns, the boy that the demon had thrown into the water and tried to drown, Jesus took him by the hand and there was some tenderness and genuine love there. And so the disciples being with Jesus got ready to serve Jesus by observing him and seeing his tenderness and seeing his power. And they also learned about their own weaknesses. I've had many times in my own personal prayer life where I have learned about my own weaknesses. And I've also in my own prayer life learned so many other things about God. And it's we being with him that makes us better representatives of him. Now, I was one day getting ready to preach in a Bible college, and I wanted to make sure that I was going to make an impact on those college students. And I thought, well, Jesus took 12 disciples and he turned the world upside down. So I'm going to do this. I'm just going to study how Jesus trained the 12 disciples, and then I'll get up and I'll teach the Bible college students the same thing Jesus taught his disciples and get them encouraged to be great servants of God. So I'm looking for what he taught them how he taught them, what parable he taught them, what lesson he taught them. And so I go to Mark 3 and I see where I called the 12 and then I look through the following chapters. So you look at the whole thing and see what God did. I think that's a good way to approach studying things. Look at the whole thing. And so here's what I found. I looked through Mark 3, Mark 4, Mark 5, part of Mark 6, and I was amazed honestly, at what I saw, and it affected my heart. Now, I'm going to take you through Mark 3, Mark 4, Mark 5, and part of Mark 6, and I know you're thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a little bit dry. I'm going to try to not let it be dry, and we're going to just skim through it, but I want to show you what I saw, and this is what helps, helped me. I first look at Mark chapter 3, and I want you to notice the very first thing I've already alluded to that Jesus said to his disciples immediately after calling them, verse 21, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him for they said he is beside himself. And basically, I think, as I mentioned, Jesus is saying, you guys, you disciples, you're not just going to be my worker bees. You're my friends, as he said later. Henceforth, I have not called you servants. I've called you friends. Have you ever grasped the truth that Jesus Christ would want you as friend. Now, always keep the position of awe. Always keep the wonder of it. Never, ever talk to him like I heard one preacher say in a very disrespectful, earthy manner. 
but appreciate and rejoice and, and enjoy the fact that he wants you to be friend. A lot of times after I win somebody to the Lord, I will say, let me give you a little advice. And I've already told them about how they know for sure they're going to heaven based on the Bible alone and making sure their faith is right and Jesus, not in what they do. But I almost always, if not always, will say to the one that just got saved just before he leaves, I've got a little advice for you. After I've told him, read the book of John, read this and that, I'll say, let me give you some advice. And I'll say, enjoy it. Enjoy your salvation. Enjoy your relationship with Christ. So the first thing he does is he says, you're friends. And then he casts out a demon. And as he casts out a demon, he casts the demon out. What did the disciples do? Here it is. They just watch. Now then the people come down and, uh, you know, they, they say, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus defends himself. The disciples are not defending him. Jesus is defending himself. They're not even defending him yet. They're just with him. And then his brethren come around and his mother and they wait for him. And the multitude says, your mom wants you. And he says, behold, my mother and my brethren. And he says, you're not just friends, you're family. You're even closer to me than just friends. Now, how much preaching did they do in Mark chapter 3? That's my question. That's my focus. The answer is none. They were just with him. Now then, let's skim through chapter 4. And I'll try to move a little quicker as we go through chapter 4. Notice verse 1, it says, And he began again to teach, not the disciples. Verse 2, And he taught them many things by parables. And as he teaches the parables, what do the disciples do? They just watch and listen. That's all. Then verse 10 through 20, he gets on with his disciples after the message and he explains what that meant. They said, what do these parables mean? And he taught the disciples. What do they do though? They listen. That's it. Verse 21 through 34, he teaches again the people in parables. What do the disciples do? Just listen. They're not preaching. They're not teaching. They're just listening. That's it. They're being with him. And then Jesus said, let's go together in a boat to the other side of the sea. Verse 35 and following. So what do they do? They just get in the boat. And as they're on the boat, a storm arises. And it's such a big storm that they're afraid for their life. And they call out to Jesus. And Jesus stands up and he says... Peace, be still. And that whole storm calmed. What did the disciples do? Just watched in amazement. And can you see that that being something so amazing would begin to turn their hearts toward the one that they're going to talk about? Can you see that? Now, as you continue, how much preaching did they do? How many gospel tracts they hand out? Do we need to preach? We need to hand tracts out. We need to rescue the perishing, as we preached on last night. But first things first. They did no preaching. They did no miracles. They did no calming of the seas, no raising the lame to walk. They just were with him. Now then, look real quickly at chapter 5. 
I'm trying to move along with this, but you're getting the idea. Verse 1, and they came over to the other side of the sea and in the country of the Gagarines. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him in the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And you read on and it says, he cast out the demon. Not one demon did the disciples cast out. Now, how much time do you think is passing? And here's a good question. How much time is passing through Mark 3? How about Mark 4? How much time is passing? We don't know. Maybe several days, possibly several weeks, maybe even several months, but they have not done one miracle message yet or anything. They were just with him. And then Jesus has the crowd come down and they try to send him out and they send him away because they wanted to keep the pigs. They were pig farmers and they watched the crowd reject Jesus they get in a ship and they go to the other side. And as soon as they get there, they see people throng Jesus. And then Jesus is approached by a man named Jairus. And Jairus says, my, my daughter is sick to death. Come, heal my daughter. So Jesus goes and the disciples follow. Did the disciples raise Jairus' daughter? No, Jesus did. What did the disciples do? They just watched in amazement. A woman touched Jesus with the issue of blood. She was healed. They watched in amazement. And Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, not one track, not one preaching service, not one ministry of service, just being with him. Now, a lot of time is going by in these chapters. Now, let's look at Mark chapter 6, and we're look at verse 1. And he went out from thence... And came into his own country and his disciples, what? Follow him. Do you see where I'm going with this? And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach, not the disciples. You see this? And then it says that Jesus, in verse 5, could do there no mighty work, save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around about the villages, teaching. Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, part of Mark chapter 6. Not one act yet of service. Be with me. And they did. And it wasn't that he was never going to send them out, because he did send them out. Notice verse 7 of Mark chapter 6. And it says, and he called unto them the 12. What 12? The 12 that he called way back in Mark 3. What 12? The 12 that never preached, never did anything, yet they were with him for, th for three and a half chapters. And notice what it says. And he called unto them the 12 and began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. And that's when they began to go forth and serve. So, the first call, sometimes we overlook it. The first thing that God wants is for us to be with Him before we ever serve Him. Are you following that call? The second perspective is the order of the call is a priority. And a Purpose is there. We cannot effectively ever 
get out here and affect people to bring them to Christ until we personally have experienced him and see him and feel that connection with him and experience that connection with him. And yes, it's by faith, but you know what it also is by? Time. You have to be with him. And then in faith, that uninterrupted union with him, but you have to spend time with him to get to know him. So first perspective, it is the overlooked call. The second perspective, I look at the order of the call. And then the final thing is I want to look at the outcome of the call. Now, verse 7 of chapter 6 makes it very clear what the outcome is. It says, and he called unto them the twelve and began to send them forth two by two. And here's the outcome of three and a half chapters of who knows how many weeks of just being with him. The outcome was they were empowered for service. He called on them, the twelve began to send them forth two by two and gave them power. Now, have you ever thought about this? A lot of preachers can be in a pulpit, and as I think pastor so very well stated, it can all be flesh. And I don't want any of it to be flesh. But it can all be flesh. And then... Have you ever noticed that there are unsaved people that will get up behind a pulpit in churches across America and preach every Sunday? They open a Bible just like we do. They say a few words like we do. And they usually kind of don't really give the sense of it, but they just kind of say, say a few words, saying, I love everybody and we'll be good. But they're using the Bible and maybe even sometimes they're actually preaching some content. Have you ever noticed that there are people that go to a state college and they get a degree in religion and they get unsaved professors that get up and they'll preach and teach, not really preach, but teach and even the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and then they'll twist it to whatever they believe. But the fact is, even if they got it right on what a passage meant, they're unsaved people. Do we hate them? No, we're trying to win them because we love them. But from this perspective, I ask you this question. Is any real ministry going on if they're unsaved people and don't have the Holy Spirit to do it? So what that shows is secular people can open a Bible and know real ministries going on. And you know what? We can do the same thing. We can open a Bible, give a track out, and we could do it all right, but no real ministry is going on because we haven't got this thing settled that we truly are connected to Jesus. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying, what's the matter with you? You people are just a bunch of phonies. I'm not saying that. I'm saying none of us need to be phonies. None of us need to be people that are just talking about Jesus without being in fellowship with him. And the emphasis is so good about Christ in you. I love it. But being with him. Empowered for service. Enabled for service. Effective in service. We've got to be with him before we can be effective for him. If I have 30 minutes to get ready to preach, and sometimes things happen, I don't know what happens, but time just like gone. And I realize I've got 30 minutes to get ready now. What am I going to do? Lord, what do you want? I used to pick up my Bible and I started to flip through my Bible and I used to think, okay, 
maybe this message, maybe that message, and I try to preach it, and I think it through, and I think maybe that, maybe say that. And you know what I have learned is a whole lot more effective? If I only have 30 minutes to get ready to preach, I am better to take 20 minutes, and if needed, 25 minutes, to pray for the Lord to tell me what to preach and be in fellowship and prayer with Him than I would ever be to take time to study what I'm going to preach. And I don't always get it right as far as the priorities, but I try to, and I know that this is what we need. I know this is what I need. Be with me that I might send you forth to preach. And so I'd rather pray for 30 minutes than study for 30 minutes if I only have 30 minutes. And I found that it's much more effective that way. Never am I belittling studying, and you know that, but be with me. Now, have you ever thought about, and maybe it's wrong thinking, but I think it's right. If it's wrong, maybe I could be corrected on it. But have you ever noticed it seems like certain people seem to be used by God a little bit more than some of the rest of us? I think about Jim Van Gelderen, for instance. I think he's greatly used by God. I think about many men like that. I think of Pastor Van Gelderen. And I think of people that are greatly used by God. I think of my father-in-law, Evangelist Ron Comfort, greatly used by God. Gary Gilmore, Brother Gilmore, greatly used by God. Now we think of Moses, and we think of the Apostle Paul, and we think of them. And then we say, and the rest of us, praise God, we get to be used too. But we have certain people that we kind of admire, and though I know the ground is level at the foot of the cross, I think there's a message here for us about being with Christ and being empowered for service. There were 12 disciples, okay? But I want you to notice something back here in the scriptures in Mark chapter 3. Okay, in Mark chapter 3, I want you to notice he ordained 12 that they should be with him and he might send them forth to preach and have power. And he says this, Simon, he surnamed Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he surnamed them Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. Now, what does Peter literally mean? It means rock. Now, most people say he got that name because of his big mouth, but really, I think rock is a compliment. Rock. And I think sons of thunder. I think of power when I think of thunder. I think of power when I think of rock. Now, all of the disciples were dear to Jesus, but there are only three, three that he surnamed. Surnamed he chose for them. Rock, sons of thunder. Now, a nickname usually has a meaning. When I was younger, I got a nickname called Dimples. When I was in eighth grade, a 10th grade girl gave me that nickname Dimples. It meant something. I had dimples. Now I have wrinkles. <laughs> but I had dimples. And then, when I was in college, I had a society, and I had a society jersey, and on the back of the jersey was the word stoop. Short for stupid. And it had a meaning. But I'm not going to tell you the meaning. But nicknames have meanings. And God says, sons of thunder, Boanerges. And he says, uh, rock. And I'm telling you my opinion. I believe that the reason that he surnamed these three people is because Peter, James, and John were used by God in a greater measure than maybe all the other disciples were. 
Now, when we think about the inner circle, we think of Peter, James, and John. When we think of the inner circle, they, though he loved them all, they spent more time with him than anybody else. And they were empowered. It says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned in men, and they marveled and took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. When the high priest, Annas, Caiaphas, John the priest, Alexander, who are teachers of the law, all knew the law, all knew the Hebrew. All of them were knowledgeable and teachers in the synagogues. They say there's something different about those men and us. We're more knowledgeable of the law than them, but they're more powerful in their ministry than us. And what was it? It was that they had been with Jesus. There's no substitute for us being with Christ if we'll be empowered by him. There's no substitute. Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. So be with him. Now who went on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? It was Peter, James, and John, the three that were given nicknames. Who were the ones that were said to have preached in boldness, Peter and John, two of the three. Now, I want you to turn, and we're about to close, turn to Mark chapter 5, and I want to show you something in Mark chapter 5, give you two illustrations, and we'll be done. Now, Mark chapter 5, I want you to see Jesus is ready to go heal Jairus' daughter, raise her from the dead, and on the way, I want you to notice who is with him as he's on his way. Notice verse 30. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging and sayest, Who touched me? And who was with Jesus at this time? Keep thinking. I know I'm going a little long. Keep thinking. Who is with Jesus at this time? His disciples. How many? All of them. All of them are with him. So then they're all with him, but then notice that as soon as he gets to Jairus' house in verse 37, he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter, say it, and James, and say it, John. The three that he gave sons of thunder title, rock title to. And I believe, and I present to us, that the reason that these people were more used by God than any others was because perhaps they spent more time with Jesus than any other. And so what we need if we're going to be used by God is to be with him. Two illustrations, as I mentioned, and I'm done. Years ago, I can remember when I was uh, experiencing this thought, being with him. And so I was on a plane, and I was going to go preach somewhere. And usually when I get on a plane and I'm going to preach somewhere, I want to do the right thing. I want to witness to people. And so I think, I'm going to witness to somebody on this plane. I hate to get up and tell people to witness and not do it myself. But this morning, I woke up and I said, God, today I'm not going to focus on witnessing every time I possibly can. I'm going to focus on being with you. That was my goal. And so I got on the plane thinking, Lord, I, I'm ready to witness, but I want to be with you. And I said, is there anybody you want me to witness to? 
So nobody's sitting here, nobody's sitting there. And I said, Lord, do you want me to witness to somebody? And it seemed like the Lord said, take some rest. So I bowed my head and I took a nap. And I woke up refreshed. And I said, thank you, Lord. And I said, Lord, I want to witness for you, but I want to be with you. That's my focus. And if there's anyone you want me to witness to, then you just tell me. And I was walking to my next leg and my next plane, and then I hear somebody talking behind me. They said they're going to San Francisco, and I'm thinking, you're going to be preaching there in a month. So it's like I said, Lord, do you want me to say something to him? And it's like the Lord said, yes. So I turn around, and I said, hey, I heard you said you're going to San Francisco, huh? He said, yeah. I said, why are you going to San Francisco? I said, he said, why do you ask? I said, well, I'm going to be in San Francisco in a month. Actually, I got ahead of myself. I said, uh, I hear you're going to San Francisco. He says, yeah. I said, well, why are you going to San Francisco? He said, well, I live there. I said, oh, okay. Well, I'm going to be there in a month. And so I was just kind of curious. And then he said, well, why are you going to be there? And I said, well, I'm a preacher. And that's all it took. He put his head down and he goes, God's trying to get a hold of me. And all I said was, I'm a preacher. I said, what's going on? And he said, today I buried my 21-year-old daughter. I said, we better talk. And we sat down, and I got to win him to Christ. And it was all God, and I loved it. So then after it was done, I barely made it to the next plane, and I got to the next plane, and I said, God, that was wonderful. Is there anybody you want me to witness to? Now I'm here to be with you. That's what I want more than anything. And I look on this side, there's nobody sitting over here. I look on that side across the aisle, and there's a man in a nice tie, nice shirt, nice haircut, and I'm thinking, well, maybe he is a Christian. So for some reason, I said, Lord, you want me to witness to him? You want me to talk to him? It seemed like God said yes. So I lean over. I said, hey, let me ask you a question. You wouldn't happen to be a Christian, would you? That might be an odd start, but that is how I started. He said, well, yes, I am. I said, great. Would you mind if I slide over and we have a little fellowship, brother? He said, come on over. So I slid over and I said to him, listen, you look really familiar. You wouldn't have happened to have been in one of my revival meetings. He said, well, where do you preach? I said, well, usually I preach in Baptist churches. He said, no, I've never been in a Baptist church. I said, okay, well, where do you go? And he said, honestly, sometimes I'm a Mormon. Sometimes I'm a Jew. Sometimes I'm a Catholic. And I figured out he wasn't a real Christian. So then I said, well, where do you live? And he said, San Francisco. I said, really? I said, listen, I'm going to be in San Francisco for a revival meeting in a month. I said, can you come? He says, I might still be there. Let me check my schedule. When are you going? And I gave him the date, and he goes, oh, I'm going to be gone. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm moving. I'm not going to be in San Francisco ever for a long time. I'm moving. I said, well, where are you moving? He says, I'm moving to Belleville, Michigan. I said, Belleville, Michigan, I'm going to be there for a revival meeting in a month and a half. <laughs> that was amazing. And he said, well, I'll come. And so I'm just thinking, be with him, be with them. And God's doing this. I'm going, this is wonderful. And then I tell him where it's going to be. I call the pastor. I get the connection. They talk to each other. He says, I'm going to be there. But the day that he was going to go to that Baptist church, he woke up and something inside of him, maybe the devil, 
said, you don't want to go to that independent Baptist church. They got all those rules and stuff, and you don't want to go there. Why don't you go to a non-denominational church? So he looked up in the phone book, a non-denominational church, and he decided he'd just go there. So he's driving to the church, and he said, as he was driving, he got lost. He turned this way, this way, that way, this way, and finally realized he'll never make the service, so he was going to pull into the first church that had a steeple. So he drove a little further and a little further, took a right and a left. I don't know how many turns he did, but he noticed a steeple, so he made his way, and then he pulled into the exact church where I was preaching a revival meeting. And there are so many other experiences like that, but that's what it's about. If we're with him, we'll get to see these things. Let's bow our heads. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in a general way, I never want to ever have a service, first of all, without asking this. You can do what you want, but I do what I feel led to do. Is there anybody here who might say, I don't know if I died, I'd go to heaven. Now, I did not preach on it, but is there anybody here tonight who would say, Brother Mike, I don't know if I died, I'd go to heaven, but I want to go to heaven, I'm a little confused about it, or I just don't know I'm going to heaven and I want help. Now, is there anybody like that at all? Just lift up the hand, I'll see it, and I'll include you in a prayer. I won't say your name where you're sitting. I'll just pray for you. Is there anybody like that? I don't know I'm going to heaven, but I want to. Pray for me. Anybody at all? All right. Now, how many of you would say, as the pianist just softly plays, how many of you would say, Brother Mike, I get the idea what you're talking about in a general way, but I get the idea. I need to be with him before I ever do for him. And you would say, Brother Mike, I needed this message. I know it's kind of general, but you'd say, I needed this message. I really, really did. And I want to focus on being with him. And that's gonna be time, but it's also faith but you need to spend time with him if you're going to get to know him and get empowered by him. And I wonder, is there any or are there many who would say, Brother Mike, I needed this. I get focused on doing for him before I get into being with him and I need to focus on being with him first. If that's you, would you lift up a hand if you needed that? All right, let's stand to our feet. And in a general way or a specific way, whatever it might be. If it's prayer time, if it's you're so busy telling everybody they need to read their Bible that you're not reading your Bible like I did, if your prayer life is not what it needs to be, or if it's just being with them in a general way, if you would like to slip out and come and pray at this time while the pianist is playing, feel free to come.